Greetings and welcome again. I just noticed on uh, Christianity Today's Facebook page, they have a uh, link for introverts during the welcome time, what to do, if you want to see that. It's on their page right now. Uh, this morning, I'll be preaching from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. This is, uh, I didn't know how many people would still recognize the land of make-believe here. You, you expect a trolley to come out of here in a second. Okay, boys and girls. Let's, Yes. So between what Jeremy has shared this morning and the song, All Must Be Well, the sermon's basically already been preached. But since we're already here, I might as well take a few more minutes and say some things about joy. We take a moment to pray with me. Our gracious God, who is always giving to us, we thank you for... Uh, the kind of God that you are, who gives to us in Christ, who gives to us through the Spirit, who's always giving. We ask that you would open our hearts and minds to see you for who you are, and that fresh joy would be given to every person. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, Perhaps you've heard me tell this joke before, but I will risk there might be somebody new, okay? So there's these three folks uh, standing around talking, a surgeon, an architect, and a politician. And they're, they're arguing about which one of them has the oldest and most noble profession. And the surgeon says, see, even in the very early parts of the Bible, God himself is a surgeon. When he opens up Adam, takes out his rib, and forms the woman, thinking that that's sure, sure to prove that he has the oldest and most noble profession. But then the architect pipes in and says, but wait a second. Before that, the world was nothing but chaos. And God, being the great designer that he is, built a world for us. And so clearly being an architect is the oldest, most noble profession. But then the politician pipes up and says, ah, yes, but who created the chaos? <laughs> I think that seems especially relevant these days. But actually, we are in the liturgical season of Easter, which in many ways is about overcoming the chaos of the world uh, and reestablishing shalom, which in the Bible oftentimes is the very opposite of chaos. Uh, Yes, though the Easter day has come and gone, we are actually still in the season of Easter. It's a season that lasts for 50 days, beginning on Easter Sunday and culminating in Pentecost Sunday in a few weeks. And Easter proclaims, it is at the very heart of Christian proclamation, that chaos is defeated. A new world has been launched. New possibilities are there. Uh, Redemption is possible. Shalom can happen. And therefore, there's reason for joy. I wanted to ask the question, and this was my Easter sermon as well. And since we're still in Easter sermon, I bring it back to you. Is Christian faith inherently joyful? Is it inherently joy-producing? Or another way to say it is, is joy a constitutive aspect or fundamental component of the Christian gospel message, such that there is no Christianity 
apart from joy. Joy belongs with it. It is is there at the root. Uh, This past semester at Barry, I led a book club with students where we read through a book called Joy and Human Flourishing. Subtitle is Essays on Theology, Culture, and the Good Life. And it's a collection of essays by several prominent theologians and Bible scholars, including Miroslav Volf, uh, N.T. Wright, Jürgen Moltmann, and others. And you might not think that joy would be uh, the logical, a logical topic to study in depth. This is by no means a shallow study. It's not a trivial study about just emotionalism or something. But they are taking the question seriously and looking at Bible and theology and asking the question that I'm asking. Is joy uh, a vital, fundamental aspect of Christianity? Uh, Jürgen Moltmann's an interesting person to be in that group of theologians. If you know, if you're familiar with his work, he's a German theologian whose uh, work has been characterized by themes such as hope and joy. In fact, he did a lot to restore those themes to theological discourse. It's all the more interesting given that uh, he just turned 90 years old uh, last week or so, but when he was 16 years old, he was drafted into Hitler's army in World War II, and he was captured by the British And he was in a POW camp for three years. But it was actually while he was a prisoner of war that he read the Bible for the first time. And he was struck by the gospel message. He was especially struck by this divine figure who cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he said, There is a divine brother. There is a God that I can relate to. There is a God that I can worship. A God who enters into the human suffering condition that we are all in. So he went into the army, not a Christian. He came out of prisoner of war camp, uh, both a Christian and determined to be a theologian. And one of the things he comments on, uh, just this church might think is kind of cool, was the kindness of the Scottish Presbyterians to the prisoners of war was one of the things that made a lasting impact on him. And so how does a guy like that go from that situation to making joy and hope some of the big themes of his theology. Unless it's real, it's certainly not shallow or trivial for him. And in fact, all the authors in that book that, I'm talk- that I just referenced, they answer these questions with a resounding yes. That since Christianity is about the good news of God's grace for humans in Christ Jesus, it is a unique religion of joy. <clears throat> And they say that given every other thought system in the world and every other religious system, none of them compare to the offering, none of them compare to Christianity in terms of what is offered in offering joy. Uh, In fact, it's not just Christians who think this. About a year ago, I was reading a book by a French philosopher named Luke Ferry, who wrote a book called A Brief History of Thought. Now... uh, Luke Ferry is not a Christian, and he gives this brief history of thought, and he's talking about every major thought system that's ever existed for the most part, ways of constructing the world and what makes for a good life, and um, the worldview, competing worldview stories, and he ends up saying at the end of that uh, survey that Christianity is the best story on offer, if only I could believe it. That ends up being sort of the tragic part of that book. (laughs) He says, this is the only story that actually offers any redemption, that actually has hope or joy in it. 
I just wish I could believe it. In fact, in one place, he says, if I could believe this was true, I would definitely be a taker. (laughs) I was like, so close. Come on. Well, let's look at our own story briefly. Let's try to remember uh, the, the big story of the Bible in which God is presented to us and revealed to us and see, is it really a story, a joy story? <clears throat> Consider at the very beginning of the Bible, we are introduced to the creator God who is wise enough to construct this world for us, who is good and declares everything that he makes to be good, and he is clearly for his creation and providing for it. When we move into the Old Testament, we see a God who makes covenant promises with people, with people who turn away from him and rebel. In fact, this God, this covenant God pursues and rescues his people from Egypt and from exile. He forgives them and gives them guidance. And in doing so, it says things like in the book of, uh, in the Ezra-Nehemiah time, after the Babylonian exile, when they are repenting and lamenting over their sin, God sends to them a word that they should celebrate and be joyful and that the joy of the Lord would be their strength and then legislates times in which throughout the year in which they have to get together and celebrate. They have to get together for these festivals, week-long parties. That doesn't sound like a joy-killing God. In fact, the people of the Old Testament realized that God was such a giver of joy. They say things like this in Psalm 16. Verses 9 through 11. Uh, I just have 9 through 11 there. Let me, I'm going to start with verse 8 then get to that. The psalmist says, I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. And then verse 11 is... You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand pleasures forevermore. The psalmist is saying it's not simply in the good things God gives that there is joy, although there is that. But in his own presence there is fullness of joy. A famous theologian from history, Teilhard de Chardin, once said that joy is the infallible sign of the presence of God. This is how you know God is here, because there's joy. When we move to the New Testament, we have the incarnate God. And think about our Christmas carols, how they sing of good news of great joy. That's the way the the angels announced it to the shepherds, right? In fact, the word used there in Greek is mega joy. I bring you good news of mega joy for all the people. And when Mary is told that she will bear the Savior, she sings out, my soul magnifies the Lord and rejoices in God my Savior. When Jesus began his public ministry, his healing and teaching, the text often says that the the people respond with joy and amazement at his works. When he talked about what it would be like to enter the kingdom of God, he tells stories like the parable of the treasure hidden in a field. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then notice this phrase, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That having the kingdom 
belonging to the kingdom was worth losing everything else you have, and you're not upset about it because it's in his joy that he goes and does this. In John chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus has been teaching his disciples some things towards the end of his earthly ministry, and he says, I've told you these things, or these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Christ wants his people joyful. And then we get to the Easter event, that defining moment of Christianity in which we declare that God has defeated death, that our king is resurrected, he is alive and powerful and reigning. Easter is completely joy-saturated, is it not? It's supposed to unleash the force of joy into the world to say death doesn't get the last word on things. Pain and suffering don't get the last word on things. The author of life himself does, and it's a word filled with joy. And Easter is supposed to be uh, characteristic of all of Christianity. That's why we meet for worship on Sundays. It's the day of the resurrection. I know know churches can meet any day they like, but this throughout history, it's been the day that we've chosen because Easter... Every Sunday is like a mini Easter, a celebration of the resurrection. And that's interesting. As central and important as the cross is to us, the cross is the other side of the resurrection. These two things go together, like two sides of a coin. You don't have one without the other. But Christianity as a whole is shaped and defined by the resurrection moment more than, and not simply by, I should say, the cross, not simply by the pain of death. It always ends in hope. And after Jesus ascends to heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. By sending the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, God is giving us his own empowering presence to live with us, to be with us, and to produce his fruit. And if you'll notice uh, in the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, joy is second only to love. When the Apostle Paul, in his writings, talks about what the kingdom of God is like or about, in Romans chapter 14, verse 17, he says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We should thank God for verses like this. (laughs) Thank you so much. The context of this verse is that people there in the church are stumbling over some man-made rules about what you can eat and or not eat, what you can drink or not drink. And Paul wants to say, that's the kind of joy-killing stuff that the gospel is supposed to overcome. Nobody gets excited about the rules. You know, it's not about the rules, he wants to say, or especially man-made rules, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. There's an implied rebuke in that passage, I think, that if you're a church community in which joy is not characteristic, there's a problem. And the problem might be that we are stumbling over man-made rules. We too often forget the story in which we belong and focus either on how well we or other people are keeping the rules or perhaps our circumstances blind us to ultimate reality. But let's look in one more place, the eschaton. That is the future. The Christian vision of what's coming in the future 
is not simply heaven, but new creation. Everything restored. And listen to the way the book of Revelation describes that coming reality. In chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. The person seeing this vision says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Which is not a way of saying there's no water there. It's in these apocalyptic visions, all the evil creatures come out of the sea. So it's a way of saying there is no more chaos. Does that mean there's no more politicians? I don't know. Maybe Public servants, yes. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. (laughs) He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. Uh, In that passage, it talked, there's like three times in one sentence where it says, What characterizes the new creation is God's presence is with his people. And that means there can be no more chaos, no more death. No more mourning or crying or pain or the things that steal away our joy. When the book of Isaiah talks about that very same moment, the coming reality when God creates the new heavens and new earth, in Isaiah 35.10, it says that everlasting joy will be upon their heads. The people who are there, everlasting joy is upon their heads. Not only that, it, it says this actually three times in the book of Isaiah. Also in chapter 51 and chapter 61, everlasting joy is on your head. That's what characterizes the future. Jesus says something similar in his parable of the sheep and the goats when he talks about uh, us standing before judgment and those who are allowed to enter in. He says it this way, that you enter into the joy of your master. Such a defining feature of our faith, of the future of life in the present. It's an inescapable conclusion, right? That joy is a fundamental aspect of Christianity. The Christian faith is joy-producing and joy-filled. But then it begs a question, right? Maybe a couple questions in your mind. But the one I'm going to deal with is, do I have this joy? Do we experience this? In 1 Peter 1.8, it says, uh, the Apostle Peter says it's possible to have not been one of those who saw Jesus and knew him uh, during his earthly ministry. And he says, even though you don't see him, you believe and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. That was characterizing this church, these churches that he's writing to. Do we have it? Well, you may, some of you might remember that maybe three years ago, I preached a sermon during Advent on the Joy Sunday, and I talked about how I had had difficulty with just the whole notion of joy in my life at times, uh, and some of you maybe do as well. Some of us have dispositional inclinations away from <laughs> joy, or maybe you have a dispositional inclination towards something like depression or worry. And then there are other people who just seem to have a naturally cheerful personality. It's not based upon anything in particular. They just wake up happy. God bless them. I don't 
I don't understand such <clears throat> folks. And I still have had this uh, struggle from time to time. In fact, there are times when I have been tempted to be joyful and then held back, held back for fear that I would not be serious-minded, that if I became too joyful, then I would neglect some important responsibility or that I would forget about some important duty or there would be some real problem that I would be totally ignorant of and not fix. Anybody else have this problem? When actually that is really not true. If the Bible is true on this and the joy of the Lord is our strength, joy actually would provide the energy for redemptive action in the world. So it's a fear-based resistance. I've thought that maybe joy is an optional add-on if you're lucky enough to have that disposition. So it is difficult for some of us by nature. I'm not saying that there aren't, or that I don't have natural joys, because in fact I do. I get a lot of joy out of my work, my family, and perhaps more than anything, my children. In fact, I named my daughter Abigail Joy, and the name Abigail means my father's joy, because I get tons of natural joy from that, and that's a gift from God, and we should rejoice in it. But I also recognize that I'm subject to losing all those things, and that if I lost them, I would lose my joy, for sure, and be devastated. So the gospel has got to be about something more than that, a lasting joy that sustains and strengthens us through all of life's seasons, a joy that makes us feel truly alive no matter what. And gospel joy must not be simply a mere emotion, even though it is an emotional, affective response to something. You see, happiness or cheerfulness can be a mere emotion because it doesn't have to be based on anything. It can just be a matter of disposition. But joy is always because of something. We have joy because of blank. It's joy because. And in the Christian gospel, it is joy because of the God who reveals himself in Jesus Christ, who acts on our behalf, who has been gracious to us, who has given himself to us. If there is an eternal God that can serve as the ground for joy, then lasting joy is possible. I believe it must be true. There's a great quote by John Calvin that I love because he's certainly not um, a shallow or trivial person and uh, certainly serious-minded, but this is a refreshing quote from him. One time he once said, There is not one blade of grass, there is no color in this world, that is not intended to make us rejoice. <laughs> I was like, that's good. I appreciate Calvin <laughs> saying that. I need to hear that. And it's not simply because color and grass are wonderful things. Grass may give you allergies. You know, <clears throat> you may be colorblind. He's trying to say something about God in that. That these things reveal something about God. They have a sacramental quality. They show us that God is good and for us and abundant. Now, I'm not trying to suggest by talking about joy and even my own experience that joy is the only emotion that the Christian gospel produces or the only thing that Christianity appropriates. In fact, biblical faith appropriates the full range of human experience and generally allows for its full expression. 
See the book of Psalms for things like that. You have Psalms that end like Psalm 88 or 89. says, darkness is my only friend. You know, that is there. But then also tells us in God's presence, there's fullness of joy. As Jeremy alluded to at the beginning of the service, um, there are many in our own community at Barry who for whom joy is not really possible at the moment <clears throat> and not present. We actually had two students at Barry in the last week whose fathers passed away. And so one would not expect in that experience to be experiencing uh, joy um, the way that you would at a celebration or the way that you would at a party, at a feast. <clears throat> and for many people, their lives are filled with such circumstances so that joy seems to escape them. Jürgen Moltmann has a word uh, for this experience and a way of connecting the idea of hope with joy. He defines hope as anticipated joy. Sometimes on this side of the return of Jesus, joy is only experienced in anticipation. And anticipated joy is hope. But hope itself is a powerful force. Hope causes people to live and think and act in different ways than they would otherwise. And it is possible to, as Paul says in another place, to rejoice in hope. It may not be, there may not be any good circumstances or natural joys to point to in a given moment. But the gospel is always true. And the God behind it is always present and real. Therefore, joy is still our destiny. So whether you feel it in this moment, either because of finals or a paper or because of very intense problems in your life, joy is still your destiny. And one day, God will flood this world with justice and joy like never before. That can be anticipated through life in Christ and with God's people in the present. I should say as an aside, I don't preach on this because, as I've indicated, not because I'm especially good at it. In fact, I cannot preach out of my own maturity or else I wouldn't have very much to say. So I can only preach these things because they are true. Because there is, it's the inescapable conclusion of studying the Bible. And what I want for us this morning is to just to remember our story, to consider afresh the good news, to rejoice and pray for, as Paul said, joy in the Holy Spirit to be the thing that characterizes us, our life, and our community, and recognize the power of gospel joy to overcome chaos in our life. And to finally remember that this joy comes not just from the air or from positive thinking, etc., but as the gift of God from God himself, it comes from intimacy with God himself. He is the one in whom this joy is found, and so let's seek him together. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we read in scripture that you so loved us that you gave to us. And one of the things you have given is the gift of life being fully alive, and a joy that gives us strength. I pray that for every person here, no matter what circumstances we are facing, that we 
but experience now in your presence a measure of joy that sustains and strengthens us for the coming days. In Christ's name, amen.